This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So, pros and cons to some debt solutions. Mm -hmm. I kind of like the idea that there are some solutions like S, Mm -hmm. more than one. Yeah, exactly. Because a lot of people, when they come in my door, they think... I'm out of options. I got nothing. They just don't know the suite of things that are out there. And that's how it feels, right? Mm-hmm. I'm done. I don't know what to do. Yeah. I've tried everything or I've tried nothing. I'm just paralyzed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in most situations, you know, what I'm excited about today, Elaine, too, is we're going to go into good depth. So uh, we're going to do two separate segments, be broken up a little bit by a commercial break here. But we're going to go through the top five options people have when they find themselves in debt. And they're not the only five options, but they're definitely five um, that are out there that I see people use, you know, to varying degrees of success. So the idea of if someone's listening, whether it's for themselves or for somebody else, most people have more options than they know about. And keep in mind, as we go on a lot on this show, we talk about, you know, people have different objectives and the people that you owe money to, it's not their objective to make sure that you're informed of all of your options that might be great for you and worse for them. So if you're waiting for a bank to tell you all the wonderful ways you can restructure your debts, you're going to keep waiting. Right. If you're waiting for a vehicle financer to tell you, hey, seize or sue and these different provisions could apply, you're going to be waiting a long time. So right. you've really got to educate yourself. Yeah. And I think I think it's really important to what you said about different situations. Uh, your age can mm-hmm. be the, the variable. Um, how you got into debt can be the variable. And that would then lead to different solutions for, let's say, those two different groups. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, good. So... Um, do you want to start? So you guys, you're helping people, mm-hmm. individuals and businesses all the time. Yeah. And people come into us and it's typically, it's a situation where they know they're in debt and sometimes it's so dire, they know that they'll never be able to pay it off in full. Um, sometimes it's not that dire. So the first of the five options that we're going to talk about today is just really logical. And let's just put it out there. Uh, but you know, one option, if you find yourself in debt is just to kind of figure out how are you going to pay the debt off in full? So I think that... Could I say that that's the first thing that people think of? Exactly. That's what most people want to do. People are honorable. I don't meet anybody that just goes into debt willy-nilly and doesn't think they've got an obligation to pay it off. Right. So how to pay it off in full. Mm -hmm. Is that even possible for some folks? Yeah, it all depends on, you know, the magnitude of the debt and their income. So what's really key there when we sit down with somebody, one of the first places that we start is to build a budget. Okay. And if we're able to build a budget and we're able to see the person can afford to, you know, support themselves, put a roof over their head, pay for the kids or whatever, and if there's still a meaningful amount of money left over for debt repayment, um, you know, that can be a good starting point to say, well, can we approach the lenders and can we see, you know, maybe will they agree to a reduced interest rate? So you would help me come to that decision when I come and see you to say, look, this is my situation. What do I do? Could I pay it off in full? Mm -hmm. And if it's a a smallish debt, you know, let's say it's, it's a few thousand less than $10,000 and you're earning reasonable uh, amounts of income, it might be just the case. You need somebody to help you, 
to sit down with your budget to look at all the inflows and outflows and where we find people really kind of lose some, you know, the drainage through the budget type of thing is on those annual expenses, things that you don't plan for. Um, you know, you're going to take a vacation, but if you don't save for that every single month, your budget's blown for that month when you go on, to, on a vacation. That's so a there's point. a bunch of best practices that if you put into, into force, um, you might still be able to pay the debt off in full, even if it looks like there's not much room in your budget. Okay. So what's the second, what's the second well, good news about so, that? So the, the pros there, um, again, is that you're not going to need much outside help. Right. And it's typically not going to impact your credit rating. Um, now, if you negotiate reduced interest rates, sometimes that can impact your credit rating. But and, and is that possible for me to do as an individual? It's possible, but the likelihood of success is very low. Okay. Um, it's something that we encourage people to try, but the amount of people that say, yeah, I talked to my bank and the only thing they can offer me is more credit at the same rate. Well, that's <laughs> really not going to solve the problem here. That may sound like a good idea, but it's not. No, and that's, that's the tool that's in their toolbox is, hey, here's more of what got you into trouble. Let's, right. let's see if that, that changes things. Um, so let's look at what's the sort of the bad news about that idea. Yeah, the negative of it is that just most people can't afford it. Um, so most people that I see anyway, as soon as your debts go beyond, you know, call it five to seven to $8,000 or so, um, compound interest kicks in and at mm-hmm. 20% interest per month or per year, um, you know, your monthly interest costs, it's often up to 90% of what you're paying is going just towards the interest cost. Maybe right. 10% of what you're paying is drawing down the balance. So uh, we've done some math on this show before, Elaine, and I know a $6,000 credit card debt, if it was on one of these, you know, uh, various retail cards where the interest rates are pretty high at 29%, not five years, not six years to pay it off, 53 years to pay something off at just the minimum payments. So when we say this as a paying off the debt in full, what we're not saying is just pay these minimum payments for the next 50 years. We're saying if you can get it cleared within the next few years, even inside of a year, then it can be a great option. Now, the other thing I want to point out that that you said is part of your sentence is that the department store interest rate, Mm -hmm. that's almost 10 points higher than what a bank credit card interest rate is. Mm -hmm. And I... you know, I often forget that. Oh, yeah. It's never carry a balance on a department store card. It's, it's just, it's a crazy, it's the most expensive credit cards that are out there. See, I think that's worth reminding. It was a good reminder for me. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, anything else on paying the debt off in full? No. So I think first of our five options is if you're able to really sort out the budget, create some space, then that's a great thing to do. Um, you know, second to talk about, and this is usually, this is the first thing that people come to their mind. If they can't pay the debt off in full, then they figure, okay, it's the interest that's killing me. So let's approach the bank and let's get a consolidation loan. See, that makes good sense to me because mm-hmm. you're putting all your debts together, but you're not necessarily adding up all the interest rates of each of those debts either, mm-hmm. right? So there yeah. should just be one. Yeah, the idea is it's simpler. So you've got one payment that you have to make. It's due on one single date, no, jolt of, no juggling multiple days or multiple amounts each month. And there should be some savings. You know, most consolidation loans, you'd save at least, um, you know, if a credit card interest rate is around 19%, you'd expect a consolidation loan to be in the range of 10 to 12%. So a okay. pretty significant savings. Yeah, and and possibly doable, depending on your situation. Right. Now, bad news. So what are the cons of this as well? First off, it's one of these things that would be great, but very few people can actually qualify to consolidate their debts. Okay. And the reasons for that is there's an old expression of not throwing good money after bad. Right. And what that means for a bank's point of view is if you approach the bank and you say, I've got all these credit cards that I owe, um, I want you, bank, to loan me money. In order for the bank to do that, they're going to have to pay off all of your other credit cards. And they might say, well, if that debt's already stuff that you can't pay off, why would we, the new bank, put our money at risk there? That that's already something that you can't handle. So typically what a bank would do is they're happy to loan money, but they want some security. And that can take the form of two things. 
One is they could ask for some security on a house or on an investment that you might have, um, you know, making sure if you don't pay off this consolidation loan, they can go and put a charge against some asset that you have so that they're covered. It's like a lien almost, Exactly, isn't it? a lien. That's exactly what it is. They want an asset that you will pledge. Um, the second thing, and this can be even more dangerous and definitely more emotional, is they can require you to get a co-signer. So they'll agree to consolidate the debt for you, but they want someone else to sign on the dotted line. And the way that works in Canada is it's joint and several liability. So it means if you're unable to pay this co-signed debt, the person who's co-signed for it can be liable for 100% of the debt, not 50-50. And that's really important to remember, not because somebody doesn't want to help you, because mm-hmm. you probably do have people in your life that would more than be more than happy to step up and help, yeah. but the risk that they then take on is enormous. Yeah, what you've done at that point is, you know, a couple things. You've enlarged the problems. Now you've got, you know, a social aspect to it, someone that you don't want to let down, someone important enough in your life that they were willing to take a risk on you. So that can be really tough. But then you've also guaranteed essentially that you can't restructure that debt without hurting the other person. So if you do a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy, which we're going to talk about probably in in the next segment on here, um, but anything you do, it's going to protect you and your liability. But the person that has co signed, the bank is going to come to that person for 100% of the debt. So it removes any ability we would have to really get the debt down to something manageable. For you, yes, but the co-signer would still be on the hook for 100 cents in the dollar, which usually means that the co-signer is going to come back to you, the individual who borrowed and said, I understand you're doing a proposal or a bankruptcy, but hey, if it's mom or dad or brother or sister, these relationships tend to last your whole life and probably they're going to want to be paid. Yeah, exactly. Very, very sticky. And the other piece that you mentioned is that critical to stop using credit while you're paying down a consolidation loan. Mm-hmm. And that's a and that's a good point. Yeah, and this I see again and again because sometimes we get the consolidation loan and then we just breathe a big sigh of relief. Okay, things are manageable now. But then what happens is we've paid off all of the cards, they're all at zero. And sometimes that can be just too tempting. So yeah. whether an emergency happens or there's some overspending on a monthly basis, um, those cards can very quickly get back to their original balances. And then you've got the same debt problem plus this other consolidation loan that you're that you're paying. So if you consolidate, but you don't actually change the underlying behavior, you really haven't solved anything. All you've done is kick the can down the road. You're going to have to deal with that problem again once the cards go back up. Now, I know that we didn't include this in the notes in this segment, but the thing that Sands & Associates its offers when you go in to say, look, this is my situation, I need some help with it, is that counseling part Mm -hmm. that you help them figure out, help the person figure out how they got into this pickle in the first place, and then really practical ways of not letting that happen again. You've summarized it perfectly, Elaine. Anybody that does either a personal bankruptcy or a consumer proposal, the government requires they come for two counseling sessions, and they're focused exactly on understanding what got you to this point, or the budgetary, non-budgetary causes. Sometimes there can be addictions, gambling, and things like that. We'll try to connect you with the right resources. And then our second session is all about life after the proceeding. How do you rebuild credit? How do you make sure you're going to have good financial habits? And this is a one-stop shop. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to mention that. Um, Now, the last piece in this segment, using credit counseling services. And I'll never forget the first time you told me the Mm -hmm. key thing about, for me, this credit counseling services is the fact that they're often um, sponsored, put together together 
funded, founded by banks. Yeah, I'm as all of our listeners won't be surprised to say I'm no fan of credit counseling mm-hmm. services because I don't believe that the communications are essentially honest at the end of the day. Um, you know, registered not-for-profit charity is one thing, but to not also say, by the way, we're registered as a collection agency when in provinces across Canada, I don't think that's giving the right message to consumers. I think they're coming in thinking that it's someone that's out for their best objectives, but sometimes it can be a wolf in sheep's clothing. Yeah. So I encourage anybody, if they're reaching out to credit counselors to at least also have a conversation with a licensed insolvency trustee. But what can a credit counselor do for you? Well, a credit counselor can try to put all of your debts together and because they're funded by the banks, all of the big banks will generally agree to an interest freeze if you're working with a credit counselor. So it can be better than consolidation in that you're not paying any interest at all, but you're still required to pay the debt back in full um, and you do still have a credit rating impact. So it's the same impact as we're going to talk about a proposal later where you actually reduce the debt just by saving on the interest, by going through a credit counseling plan, um, your credit rating still takes the same type of a hit. Got it. Now, let's let's go right to the bad news or the things that you really need to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. Uh, government creditors, That's like huge. Canada Revenue, yeah. will refuse to participate in all-for-profit and non-profit credit counseling programs. Yep. doesn't matter, not-for-profit charity, whatever. If you are a credit counselor, you cannot do a thing with tax debt or with student loans. So if you're working with a counselor and they say, well, we're going to help you with the other debt, but you've got student loan and tax debt, you need to get help for the whole situation. And licensed insolvency trustees are the only people that can negotiate firm deals or agreements mm-hmm. with CRA. That's exactly right. Yeah, okay. we're the only folks that can reduce tax debt. So I'd encourage people, I know we're winding down in time for this segment, but to consider a credit counselor like a collection agent and use your, you know, have your risk antenna up. They might have a good option for you, but quite often there's better options out there. For more information, uh, go to the website sans-trustee.com or better yet, give them a call 1-800-661-3030. Uh, to get that free consultation and to find an office near you. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. We're talking about debt solutions uh, for folks that find themselves in situations. We've talked about in the first segment paying the debt off in full, getting a bank consolidation loan, and uh, using credit counseling services. Mm -hmm. So next is... Making a consumer proposal. Yeah. So we talked in the first segment, kind of a two-part series. We're going to say the top five things people can do, and it's not intentional, but we think the two best options are actually things that I can help you with as a licensed insolvency trustee. I think it's okay that you say that. Yeah, maybe it is intentional. It's our show. We're allowed to, (laughs) right? Exactly. (laughs) And and I do passionately, obviously, believe in in what we do here and the number of folks that are just amazed that this stuff even exists. So I think the more and more we can tell people about these options, the better. Um, So yeah, so the fourth solution we're going to talk about um, is what's called making a consumer proposal. Any of our longtime listeners will know well what a consumer proposal is, but let's make sure that we lay the right groundwork here. So what a consumer proposal is, is it's meant to be a win-win situation to get you out of debt. So the win to the individual is that they don't have to file for bankruptcy. It's an alternative to bankruptcy. It's a little less severe, and we'll talk about all of that. Um, The win to the creditors, the people that are owed money, is if that person chooses to file for bankruptcy, they're probably going to get back pennies on the dollar, maybe nothing, maybe 5 or 10% of the debt. In a consumer proposal, you offer them some 
something more than what would be recovered in bankruptcy. So typically a consumer proposal, you take whatever the debt is, you offer somewhere in the range of 20 to 40% of the total amount owing, you pay no further interest, there's no additional charges, and you pay off that reduced amount over a period of up to five years of payments. And I just want to throw in that going to see you, Sands & Associates, uh, you're going to help me figure out the best route to take, mm-hmm. whether it be making a consumer proposal, because that might work, yep. or bankruptcy exactly. might be the best answer. Yeah, so my job as a licensed insolvency trustee, there's only a thousand trustees in the country. We're all bound by a very strict code of ethics, standards of professional practices. Uh, and I have to be completely agnostic or indifferent into what choice a client makes. Uh, my job is to help you see all the facts, help you see all the different options that are out there, answer all your questions, help you analyze. But at the end of the day, it's your decision to help you move forward. So people feel a really good sense of ownership when they say, you know what? Yeah, I really want to do this proposal. It's my proposal as opposed to a solution that you come in. And hey, here's one solution that works for everybody. It doesn't. There, there could be situations where things are great in a proposal and other situations where a proposal just doesn't work. Okay, so let's talk about the other things that, that why a proposal works. Mm-hmm. Uh, legally, you, it, it stops your creditors from contacting you for payment uh, mm-hmm. or continuing harassment or whatever. They That's can't huge. do it. Right. So the first three options that we talked about, they're all informal solutions. There's no legislation that governs anything around credit counseling, paying it off, or getting a consolidation loan, as soon as you file a consumer proposal, the federal government, federal law, steps in to protect you. So this means if you're getting 20 collection calls a day, those go to zero. If someone's at your door threatening to seize your assets, they can't do that anymore. If you've just been served with court documents, typically those come to a stop. You know, there's some exceptions for family proceedings, custody and that, but anything about payment of a debt, all of those types of proceedings, you know, the wolves at the door, Everything has to take a break as soon as you file the proposal, and that can be just life-changing. People can finally breathe again, not dealing with 20 or 30 calls a day. And here's another reason why uh, you can start to breathe a little bit easier, is when you come up with your plan, uh, there's flexible payment terms. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about that. Yeah. So what I love about a proposal is, again, in layman's terms, it takes all of your debt, consolidates it, reduces it down to what you can afford, and you get five years to pay it off. But we set a very low minimum. We just say, you know what, if you're offering a proposal of $6,000, you can pay that off at $100 a month over 60 months, but you can pay as much as you want. If you get a bonus at work, you get a tax refund, anything like that, you can make an extra payment on your proposal. And as soon as your trust account hits that, it's called a $6,000 proposal, you're finished. So the maximum term is five years, but many, many people end up finishing a proposal much more quickly because first off, there's no interest working against them. um, And then second off, they usually feel pretty proud, pretty accomplished when they're able to get this put behind them. Now, what do you get out of this? What do you get paid? Because you're mm-hmm. you're running this as a, a business. Yeah. How do you get paid? Yeah, the trustee gets paid out of what the person pays into a proposal. So just following the example that I was mentioning, so say someone comes in, they owe $20,000 of consumer debt, which is very typical. We offer a proposal for 30% of that debt, which is $6,000. Which okay. means that's all you're paying back is $6,000. All they're going to pay back is $6,000, and that's what they can afford to pay back. The trustee gets paid out of that amount. So the creditors, we offer them about 30% as a gross, meaning that's what the person is going to pay in, and the government sets a tariff for trustee fees. So the person pays no upfront fees, they pay nothing beyond the $100 monthly payment, and the trustee gets a portion of that each month before it's distributed to creditors. In a ballpark term, it's about 20% of what's paid in. So if you're paying $100 on a proposal, roughly $80 of that goes directly to your creditors, roughly $20 of that would come for costs of administration. Okay, and that includes... uh 
uh, setting this all up, mm-hmm. negotiating all the terms with That's all right. the debtors, as well as um, some counseling mm-hmm. uh, at the end of it or, or during it. Yeah, yeah two it's count- really during it too. Two counseling right? sessions. Yeah. yeah, every time I come in to see you, I'm sure there's a bit of counseling going on, <laughs> helping me figure this out and how to get through it. Um, also, I love the fact that you mentioned it can be paid off in full at any time without penalty. Mm-hmm. That's really cool because yeah. some people they're able to do that. Oh yeah, it's amazing. You know, and it, what I love about my job, there's a lot of things I love, but one of them is just seeing that, you know, the change in people when they come in, you know, when they're filing the proposal, the first time I meet them and they're almost, you know, mistrustful or skeptical this even exists. Why don't I know about this? And then to six or eight months later where they're working more, they're getting bonuses, they're making extra payments on their proposal. They just feel that much more, more that much stronger by the end of it. And, it, and we mentioned um, the rebuilding tools, money management, education. That's all part of the counseling that you get. Yeah. So what's the downside of a consumer proposal or a con of it? Well, the only downside really that I can see is that there's a credit rating impact. So for two to three years after you finish paying off the proposal, it's going to be noted on your bureau that you did file a consumer proposal. And, you know, the day after, probably no one's going to loan you money. But eventually people do rebuild. People come from bankruptcy to getting a mortgage in two or three years. And a consumer proposal is not as severe as a bankruptcy. Yeah. And yeah, because it looks good. You've mm-hmm. you've repaid the debt that was negotiated and, and you're good to go. Exactly. Um, and the other part of it, and I don't think this is a con, but it's something that you can't do on your own. You That's have to right. go to a licensed insolvency trustee That's to correct. get this done. And there's so yeah. many good pieces and good news about that. Yeah, you don't have to pay any referral fees. You just come straight to a trustee. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the last one, file for personal bankruptcy. And we kind of mm-hmm. talked about a little bit about that already. Yeah. What are the What's the good news about a bankruptcy? Well, and this one is last by de- by design here because bankruptcy is your last resort. So if nothing else works, it's a chance for you to get back to zero. And, you know, the benefit here is bankruptcy gets you out of debt, just about 100% of debts. Now, other than the ones that you shouldn't be able to get out of, like child support, spousal support, but just about every other debt gets eliminated as you go through a bankruptcy. And typically bankruptcy, most people that I meet with, when I'm explaining the concepts, it takes less time than you think. It costs a whole lot less than you think, and it's less intrusive than you probably would appreciate as well. Um, So in terms of duration, if someone files for bankruptcy, most people think it's a six or seven year term in bankruptcy. No, for 80% of people, it's nine months. They can go from the worst situation, owing a lot of money, to being start, starting again, owing nobody anything for most people in nine months. And for most other people, if they're not low income, about a year longer than that. So inside of two years. And again, you're getting all the services from Sands & Associates. You're getting that counseling and that assistance to move forward. Mm-hmm. Now, the downside of it is... Uh, your credit history, there's an impact on that. Yeah, so that, that's for sure. And what I usually tell people to accept is that, you know, your credit's going to go to zero and you're going to build it back up. So bankruptcy is one of the worst things you can do to your credit other than, you know, just skipping out in your debts or having things repossessed from you. Um, but it's something that you can recover from. So I tell people to, you know, chart out the next five or 10 years. If you keep doing what you're doing, making these minimum payments, you'll have great credit, but you'll still owe whatever the number of the debt is. Uh, if you take your credit to zero, but also your debt to zero, you can rebuild within probably two to three years and be much better off because you can save money again. Now, I also want, we've got just about 20 seconds left here about the debt options calculator. Yeah, so thanks for highlighting that, Elaine. So anybody listening, if they go to our website, sands-trustee.com, you can put in the amount of debt that you have and click calculate and it's going to show you everything from a consolidation loan, paying the debt off in full, doing a consumer proposal or filing a bankruptcy based on your income and the situation. So it's not perfect for all situations, but it will be directionally accurate for our listeners to check out. Excellent. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. If you want more information, the website again, sands-trustee.com.
Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So virtually no consumer today is immune to taking on some form of debt, whether it's a mortgage, student loan, you've got, or maybe you have one of those in your family where you've got a student, or just the credit card. Uh, getting credit uh, and as a result having debt, uh, pretty much a fact of life. Yeah. What I guess what people aren't always aware of, that not all types of debt are worth having? I mean, is that yeah. does that make sense? Well, you know, the way I would describe it is debt is more or less, it's a tool. You know, in some ways it's like fire. Fire is great when it works for you when you're using it constructively. But if your house is on fire, gee, fire is not so great anymore. Fair so enough. A useful servant, but a lethal master. And that's exactly what debt is. And we never want to get into a, a situation where we say all debt is bad. It's not the case. Sometimes debt can be very good for us, but there's definitely different categories of debt. So what I wanted to talk about today, Elaine, was let's really segment debt into, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And you've used that term before. Yeah. So if someone's listening and they've got, you know, some, some various types of debt and they're wondering where they fit, you know, let's, let's classify a couple of things today and then let's talk about what you can do about it. Okay. So let's, let's start with the good news that, which is where I always like to start with yeah. good forms or, or the good debt that we can have. Yeah. So essentially good debt. Uh, the principle here is that you're paying money for something, but there's some overall benefit there. You know, at the end of the day, you're going to have more than what you started with. Essentially, it's going to be an investment. The best example of this is something like a mortgage. So a mortgage is usually good debt because it's a forced saving program. So instead of paying rent every month, you're paying, you know, down a mortgage that eventually over time will ideally go to zero and then you'll still have an asset there at the end of the day. So the good part of it is you'll pay the debt down, you'll still have some value and ideally that asset has appreciated so it's going to be greater than what you actually paid in the debt. Now, where this can go bad is there's often, almost always two sides to every coin here, is it's great if you've got the house and you've got the mortgage and you're paying it down, but my God, how attractive it can be to get a home equity line of credit, um, Mm. especially in the lower mainland. The amount of folks I've had come in to see me, you know, sometimes it's senior citizen couples where there's no reason why they should be in my office as we essentially, you know, go through the analysis. They bought their house for $30,000 in 1980. Mm -hmm. And when I say, well, what's the house worth now? You know, it's worth one million five, one million seven. And what's your mortgage on that? It's about one million five, one million seven. Yikes. So they have progressively pulled out the equity again and again to the point that this is no longer good debt. They still owe a bunch of money on an asset that's worth about the same. So they've essentially um, taken away their their future appreciation just by consistently renegotiating or pulling out home equity lines of credit. So those types of products, home equity lines of credit have set record levels this past couple of years in Canada. Literally everybody is doing it, your neighbor's probably doing it. If you're in that situation, try not to do it. Is it so it's never a good idea to do that then? Not never, but you know, it's obviously never a good idea to use up all of your equity in home equity sure, line, lines I of credit that. there. And, you know, sometimes it makes sense, but you know, a lot of the reasons why people are doing this, you know, they don't always make financial sense. So there's a lot of research that would say if you pull, you know, fifty thousand dollars out to do a renovation of your house, you might think you're gonna bump up the sale price by that, but typically not because the person who's purchasing the house, they're not going to value the renovations the same way you did. They're not going to have the same taste profile as you do. So quite often you think you're increasing value and investing, but you know, you're consuming, you're making something that you will enjoy, but it might not be there in the long term. So what's the piece of advice around that? Like what's the process or the, the, the thinking that I should do before I 
I, I mean, even think about a renovation on a, yeah. on, a ma- on my biggest major asset that I have. Yeah, you know, renovation is one thing, but I think the more insidious thing is just this constant just leakage on a monthly basis where Fair people enough. are spending more than what they owe. Yeah. And then what I see, you know, roughly every five years, they'll renegotiate the mortgage and they'll take all the credit card debt that they've accumulated and they'll just roll that into the mortgage, you I know, pull, pull out the equity in that manner. So, you know, if it's for a specific project and you've really thought it through, you know, it might not be a bad idea. Right. But what's it's just too easy to pull out the equity to avoid dealing with a monthly budgetary problem. You know, if you're spending more than what you're taking in every month, you know, if you understand, well, you're just drawing down your house equity, that's one thing. But the amount of folks I sit down with who just had no idea they were actually overspending and they just progressively drew drew down their equity over time. Wow. Uh, And we've been inundated with that message that it's it's easy and it's um, beneficial and it's a good idea. Oh yeah. If you own your home, we can get you a loan. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> all those dear. various slogans that oh, are out there. You know, there's oh, someone dear. making money there, and it's not the homeowner. And it's not me. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about student loans? I would, I mean, I'm sort of torn about student loans sometimes, but I guess it's a good debt? Typically, it's a good debt because, again, you're investing in an asset. You're investing in yourself, and the whole idea here is you're going to end up with a greater earning capacity than you would otherwise have if you hadn't taken the student loan. Now, it's hugely important that you actually do the analysis and figure out if I'm going to spend, you know, $60,000 for a four-year, you know, general arts degree, that's great. I will definitely learn how to learn, but am I going to step into an immediate, you know, middle-class type of income that's going to allow me to pay that student loan down quickly? Probably not. Not. Yeah, so you really need to take stock of, you know, what are my future employment prospects and really gauge the amount of student funding you're going to take based on that. Just because they will loan you some maximum amount doesn't mean you should necessarily take it. Every dollar needs to get paid back. And one thing that I've noticed, too, in terms of a trend for students or for new employees is that it takes more than one degree to get in the door these days. Yeah. It, it didn't used to be like that, mm-hmm. but it certainly is like that now. Yeah, and that's something to, to watch out for too. A lot, of the, a lot of student debt that I see, sometimes it's for professional or you know non-university or college types of programs, and some of them are very, very good. Some of them aren't. I have people, you know, tell me they advertise, you know, certain prospects for employment. As soon as I got into the program and had paid the money, I quickly found out, well, there's no prospects for employment. Yeah. But the school made money, and at the end of the day, the person's left with the debt. So be very careful. I would say talk to recent graduates, look at job postings, make sure it's very clear that you'll be able to satisfy whatever whatever good debt, student debt you get yourself into. And massive student loan debt is I mean, it's significant. It's shocking when you start researching a little bit and see what young people are uh, burdened with coming out with nothing. I believe it's the next great bubble that we're going to face. And the U.S., unfortunately, is even worse than us, but it's, it's a very significant problem. Wow. Um, Any other steps that we should take uh, when you're talking about student loan? I know um, we've talked to people in the show in the past about if you can earn money Mm -hmm. while you're going to school, that will lessen the impact. Is there any other things that we can do to or or keep in mind if we're supporting somebody going back to school or going to school for the first Mm -hmm. time? Yeah, definitely trying to get, you know, part time work or tutoring or things like that. That's that's definitely going to be helpful. But, you know, another thing is really 
really making sure to taking advantage of everything that's available to you. So I remember when I went to school at York University, um, there were bursaries that no one applied for for years, mm. you know? And if you went through, you know, you figured out, here's the criteria, here's the application process. If you figured that out, you were actually able to get some money. And I know that exists at various universities. There's a lot of bursaries, a lot of scholarships that sometimes they just don't go awarded every year. So yeah. make, make sure you're aware of what potentially could help you. That's a really good point. Even the, the uh, smaller schools like the BCITs, um, and they're very specific. If you're in that area, mm-hmm. uh, whether it be the business school or the, you know, whatever schools there are, um, there is money there. There yeah. are bursaries and scholarships from businesses or companies that do that kind of work that want to support somebody who may not be uh, financially viable to, to go into it on their own. Mm-hmm. That's a really good really good idea. Yeah. Uh, what about bad debt? Yeah, so bad debt, this is you know what most people would logically conclude is not a good thing, is where you've spent the money already, there's no future benefit, nothing good is going to come of this. So the classic example here is credit card debt. Mm-hmm. So just about everybody that I sit across from when they're just explaining to me their debt situation, you know, if I were to ask them, well, what do you have to show for that $20,000 on the Capital One MasterCard? Nothing. What do you have to show for the 15K on American Express? Nothing. It's all basically money that was spent on consumption. It was necessary at the time, but it didn't actually provide any long-term benefit. And it's just this weight around our neck. It's weighing us down. It's something that's taking our current earning capacity and constraining us for doing something that we want to do because we've got to pay this cost of what we incurred in the past. Is there a, a bit of advice or a tip that you could give us if that if that looks like where we're headed, what to do? Like, do we cut up our cards or? Yeah. I mean, it, I don't know. Yeah. First thing is to figure out how bad is the problem. Okay. You know, if you've overspent on a credit card that's $1,000, you're not too bad. If you're facing, you know, twenty or $30,000 of credit card debt, I would submit that you need some professional help to get out from that because the challenge here is that the interest is going to work against you in ways that you never thought possible. Yeah. So, you know, we all love, or some of us would love to invest. And if you ever heard you'd be able to invest and get 20 to 24% return every year, you'd say that's a scam. It never happens that way. You could never guarantee those returns you are paying that on your credit cards every single year, probably 20 to sometimes 29% per year. So you got to get yourself off of that, that trap, that hamster wheel of just paying interest on old credit card debt. The way you can do that is by sitting down with a trustee such as myself. And figure it out. Yeah. And let's go to the ugly, the ugly debt. Yeah, the ugly debt, um, you know, these are things where debt's been incurred typically as a last resort, and there can be some severe, some immediate consequences if you don't deal with it. So starting with the severe or immediate consequences, if you owe the government money, almost always that's ugly debt. Things like um, unpaid taxes, unpaid GST if you're self-employed, unpaid source deductions if you have employees, nothing will shut you down quicker than CRA showing up and saying, I'm seizing your bank account, I'm going to your customers, I'm going to take any money that they owe to you. The government can do that with very little notice to yourself. So if you find yourself with significant government debt, sooner rather than later, you'd want to get some advice to understand what you might be facing and how you can hold the government at bay. Because like with many things, facing it head on, being a reasonable person, trying to arrange a payment plan, that's going to stop them from taking really severe actions against you. But ignoring the problem, getting very confrontational with CRA over the phone or just hide. Doesn't work. Never works. (laughs) Never works. Never worked once, right? Not once. All right. And finally, in this segment, what are some of the things that we can do to evaluate our own debt 
categories? Yeah, so as we said a, a bunch of times, you'd want to take stock of the situation. So, so much of this is just getting a single sheet of paper and saying, here's what I owe. And, you know, one of those tools can be to put it into the good, the bad, and the ugly. So here's what I owe, the good debt, the mortgage, I'm able to keep up on this. I'm not pulling out the equity. The student loan, okay, I've, I'm able to keep up on the payments, but the big challenge that I've got is the bad and the ugly debt. I've got some credit card debt. I've got some student loans. I might even have some payday loans. Um, So you'd want to sit down with a professional to understand what your options are, because sometimes people think if you restructure one part of your debt, you lose the good part. So people might think if you've got a mortgage, you can't do a consumer proposal or you can't do a bankruptcy or you lose the house. Absolutely not true. You could do a consumer proposal and keep the house. And if you had to go into a bankruptcy, you would often keep the house as well. And that's where you come in. That's where Sands and Associates can come in so beautifully because you sit down, you're free, you get your first hour free or your consultation free, and you can say, look, this is my situation. This, 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 and this, and this. These are my burdens. These are my debts. What do I do? Yeah, and if it's a case that the right solution is that you just need a little bit of coaching, some budgetary help, maybe we connect you to a professional that can help you, but you don't need the help from Sands and Associates, that's a victory for us too. You know, we don't need to sign everybody that comes through our door. That's not the the right answer for them, but we want to give the right information to the right people at the right time, and we firmly believe we're the only unbiased folks in the market here. We don't have an axe to grind. We just want you to have the information to make your decisions. Right, and then go from there. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Sophie Salcedo is on the line with us. She's a wealth advisor at Van City, has a ton of experience providing good financial advice. She loves what she does, wants to make financial independence achievable and easy to understand. And of course, Van City is, I didn't realize this, but uh, the largest community credit union in the country, which is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. I've been a member for a long time, but I didn't know that. Sophie, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. Now, we know there's tons of banking options uh, available to consumers today. Uh, We'd like to highlight some of the ways that people can choose well and get the most out of their money, including me and Blair. We'd like to get the most out of our money. Of course. What are some of the, let's start really at the very basics of Banking 101. What are some of the uh, kind of the basic accounts that we should consider having? Yeah, well, let's just start with some very simple ones. I mean, most everybody and most people probably already have, they should have a checking account. So you need to have a type of account where your paycheck's going in and then you can do your automated bill payments right back out of it that way. And I would say the next thing people need is some sort of savings or they're very often called high interest savings accounts today. So your checking account is going to pay you very little in interest. We know rates are low. So anything over and above your needed spending for the month, you might want to tuck away in like a higher interest savings account. And the last one I would highlight is um, opening up a tax-free savings account. That's another basic account type that people can use to just store some cash tax-free. Let's talk about those a little bit more, that tax-free savings account. Not everybody, and it's hard to believe, but Mm -hmm. not everybody knows about this. Yes. So, I, yes, I keep having these conversations again and again and again. Right. Trying to get the word out. Yeah, I they, know. They are the golden goose in my mind. So the more I use them with my clients, what's really important to understand is there's, there's really two main purposes for them. Number one, it can be your emergency cash. Even tuck in 500 or or $1,000 in there, but you just won't owe anybody any tax on what you earn. You'll keep all the money. So use it for that. And number two is 
if you've got, if you're further along your financial path and you've got extra dollars, and in fact, if you have enough savings that it may even go through to an inheritance, they're actually an estate tool, and you need to top that thing up every year and pass as much money as you can to your beneficiary tax-free. So what's my limit that I can put in on an annual basis? So right now, it's $5,500, and every Canadian, if they were of age when the plan started, can have can deposit $52,000. So now explain to me one more time, because I'm not particularly bright when it comes to money, how is that a tax-free savings account? So it's essentially a registered plan again. So it's going to be attached to your social insurance number, and the government is allowing every Canadian resident to have such a plan, and whatever they invest and earn in there, you're allowed to take money back out and use it whenever you need it, and you're not going to owe the government any tax on that money. And let's talk about quickly the reason why, because they probably know that they can't afford all the costs that are coming upon us, barreling down our health care, education, etc., and they're worried, and they want, they're encouraging people to save, so, so take advantage of it. Very cool. Now, you did talk about a savings account, and while I personally think it's a good idea, because I've had one forever, mm-hmm. um, I don't always feel like I'm getting the most out of my savings account. Yeah, so this is where it's going to be best to come in for financial advice from someone like a financial advisor like myself. And we need to take a look at your whole picture. And if you if you are, if you've got money that's been sitting there for year after year, it's extra and you haven't used it, it needs to go in the right place. So it either and it can be invested with a longer term purpose to try to earn you more. So you need to have a conversation. So that could be something too that I could put in my tax free savings account, yep. right? Yeah, definitely. Would make some sense. Excellent. Turning the page a little bit, um, Sophie, just looking on the other side of the the ledger or the balance sheet, so to speak, Mm -hmm. thinking about Mm -hmm. credit, um, you know, and credit cards. I wonder if we can start kind of basic, you know, what's the difference between a standard credit card and a prepaid card or even a secured card? I know Van City has some different options there. Yes, yes, we do. Yeah. So definitely a good starting point to discuss is the secured credit card which I'm glad you brought that up. I might have missed that. But very often when we're teaching youth and teens about credit, and as a parent, you may actually be okay with helping your child um, qualify for a credit card. At City, we would set up a secured credit card for the first time for that person where they're going to start to get a credit history and say have a $500 limit and put a term deposit at the City bank account that's going to secure the spending of up to $500 on that credit card. So it's a good way to, re- to raise your credit history and a safe way that the institution like City is going to allow that to happen. So there's no risk to the individual because if they, you know, yeah. don't pay the bill, Van City's yeah. going to cash in the term deposit and, and that's that. They're not going to, you know, charge themselves into the poorhouse, so to speak. Ex- exactly. So it's a, it's a very good learning lesson on how to start the use of credit. So that's a great way to start for someone younger. Um, and then the prepaid card is a little bit of a different animal, and we do offer those at Van City as well. And so that's and that can be used actually as a gift card. So it can it's it functions like a, a credit card essentially. And someone comes into a branch and loads up this prepaid card with a certain amount of money. Um, they've loaded it up, and now they can give that away as a gift, or again, it could be used by a child. And they can spend on that card as a credit card up to that amount that's on the card. Right. And I have a lot of my clients who, when they come out of either a bankruptcy or a proposal, they want to rebuild credit. And a lot of them, they don't understand the difference with a secured versus a prepaid card. I think you did a great job of explaining it there, Sophie. You know, the prepaid card, it could be a gift. Anybody can use it. It's not directly tied to an individual and it doesn't help build your credit. Is that that the fair difference? That's the main point right there. Yeah. It does not help build your credit. So there's no linkage to Equifax or a credit rating agency showing you diligently because, again, it's nothing being paid off monthly. It's just a one lump sum that's being spent. So that's that's the main difference, yeah. And are there typically fees with secured credit cards and prepaid cards? 
with secured credit cards, um, we wouldn't have a fee. With a prepaid card, I believe there is a small charge. Right. Um, yeah. So, so that's a little bit of a difference there, too. And then, of course, your standard credit cards. Um, again, the, the main thing there is just really being conscious of how much credit do you really need and how many cards should you have. It's far too easy for us to apply for too many cards because the, the manufacturers make it so enticing, right, to save 15% today if you get a card. So mm-hmm. you feel like you need to do it. You feel like you're, you're not smart if you don't do it. And so uh, the way I always tell people to think about it is you need to understand that when you apply for credit, we're all watching you behind the scenes, meaning all the financial <laughs> institutions are watching you. That's your credit and, rating, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And so you need, and I, because I work here, it's very, it's, it's in the forefront of my mind. So I, I'm always thinking, I would always think before I ever signed off to allow anyone to run a credit check for me. I want to know why you need it. Do I need it to be run for me as well? And also um, thinking about what's it going to look like? How does it reflect on me? Because that's what we look at now. And so we would see you as having credit-seeking behavior if you've applied for too many different types of credit. So be diligent with your credit card. And, of course, number one rule always is don't spend more than you can pay back. So you've got to do your best to keep on top of paying it back. So what are the advantages then if you've never had a credit card before? What are the kinds of things that I, like a bit of a litmus test that I would Mm -hmm. run through my own brain before I applied for one? Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. So uh, today we're all living in the world with points, right? Everybody's collecting points and should be collecting points. And so I've had to teach a few people, including my mom, <laughs> charge everything that you're buying. If you're a diligent person and you pay it off every month, and at Van City we actually can automate it, so you don't even miss a payment as long as the cash is in your bank account or you just use your line of credit. You're going to pay it off that way, and charge as much as you can to get the points back that are going to lead you to maybe help pay for a travel flight. Of Advanced City, we have points that are cash back as well for members, so they build up a lot of cash that way and then take the cash and do something else with it. So you need to look for the best rewards points that's going to help you. Advanced City, we have um, Enviro cards, so some of our profits go back to environmental causes, so a lot of our members like to know that that's being done behind the scenes for our cards as well. And, and just really, again, you don't need too many, so you know, I try to keep a limit on how many I have, but I know that each card is, has a certain function behind it. So either we all talk about Costco now, right? Only taking a certain type of credit card. So I, I need to, to know how I want to pay for the things at Costco. And so I've got that set and just knowing what your habits are and how to satisfy them. Is there any kind of movement uh, within banks issuing these credit cards for the interest that they charge on the, uh, on the uh, you know, at the end of the month if I haven't paid it off? Um, so, so ask me that question again one more time. So is there any difference in the interest rate that banks are charging for their credit cards? Yeah, so you definitely need to, that's another major factor, especially if you are fearing you might not be able to pay it off every month. So some cards, uh, Van City has a low interest credit card. So you're going to be careful and always ask what is the credit card charge? What's the interest rate charge on that credit if it's going to be outstanding? And, and you should be looking for the lowest rate if you are going to be holding a balance. So there can be a bit of a difference sometimes. Definitely. Excellent. We've been talking with Sophie Salcido from Van City. Van City's website, nice and easy to remember, vancity.com. Uh, Sophie is an advisor at Van City with just a ton of good experience providing financial advice. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scullin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, getting a financial fresh start. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. 
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. <laughs> and Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.